moving ahead into midday on the Rural Radio Network. And that means it is officially midday now as we move through this Friday into a day that is almost tropical. That's going to be followed closely on its heels by, well, a lot of what we just really don't know. One or two degrees in the veering of the incoming precipitation and cold might make a big difference on who gets what. So stay with your rural radio station as we go through the next 48 hours or so, and we'll get a much clearer picture. In fact, you'll be living that picture here probably by late Saturday into Sunday. It is the midday program. We go to uh, Susan Littlefield, who is standing by and taking a good look on how the shutdown may affect agriculture. What do you think, Susan? It's getting interesting. You know, Congressman Jeff Fortenberry will join me at 1245, and he says, let's work on not having a shutdown, Mm -hmm. Uh, not how you want to go with a weekend, but more importantly, all the people that a government shutdown affects. Uh, The stopping of the paychecks, and for many of them, they're expected to still keep working, Mm -hmm. even though there won't be anything put into their accounts. So they're working hard and diligently right now in Washington, D.C., so hopefully we can uh, keep that from happening. Of course, at 1219, we'll get an update from Al Dutcher. And just so you guys know, I'm going to wear my pajamas backwards tomorrow. I'm going to put ice cubes in the sink. Anything and everything I can think of to get some precipitation snow over the weekend. Yeah, we could probably use that in a great many places. Moisture would be very welcome by many. Then coming up at 117, trade with Mexico. Even all this NAFTA discussion going on, the National Pork Producers Council continues to work hard to keep that dialogue open. We'll have more coming up at that and more throughout the day. All right. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Susan. Let you get back to work. And here we are with, uh, of course, Jason Jorgensen, who's got uh, probably as many syllables under his belt or looking, looking down the barrel at him as he's ever seen in his life. There's a lot of talking last night, but uh, I saw a great basketball game, something that doesn't happen very often in our region. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northwest Missouri, the reigning D2 men's national champions, the men's basketball team was beat last night in Kearney by UNK. It's actually the first time the Lopers have ever beaten Northwest Missouri in men's basketball. So, mm-hmm. so that was an exciting one, so uh, we will recap that. Also, it's great action in Lincoln as the Nebraska men finally beat Michigan for the first time since being members of the Big Ten. As not only did Nebraska win that game, they won it pulling away. Certainly a resume builder for Tim Miles and company winning that one by 20. We have reaction for you. Also coming up in sports, talk more about the Husker recruiting trail. Scott Frost and his assistant coaches, you'd have to say they have done a wonderful job in a short amount of time putting together this class. Two more commitments last night, or at least verbal commitments. We're going to tell you who those kids are. Also touch on the Australian Open. And if you're wondering, Tim Tebow is going to give baseball another try again. <laughs> and in order to make money and sell jerseys, the Mets will have him at spring training. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> well, you Who gotta, didn't see that one coming? you got to have a gimmick, don't you? Yeah, everyone does. And speaking of business, here's Bob Rogan. A report finds U.S. oil output is booming, and uh, the price of oil fell on a report of that, so we're watching that situation. Um, also, uh, dovetailing on what Susan said, the House has voted to remain in session for now at least, while a Senate vote to avert a government shutdown looms. And if that wasn't enough, and it should be, Coca-Cola says it's going to attempt to collect and recycle a bottle or can for everyone it sells within 12 years. Wow. I I <laughs> heartily endorse that. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. And this is Midday on the Rural Radio Network. 
Well, I know we have all seen the movies that feature Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but uh, (laughs) rarely do we get to live it in the weather. But over the course of the next 24 hours to 36, we're probably going to be doing that. Yeah, we're enjoying mild conditions uh, since yesterday, and of course today, that's still going to stick around somewhat tomorrow, just going to be slightly cooler. We just got out of a kind of an ugly side of the weather the last four weeks here in central Nebraska. The last four weeks, if you thought it was colder than usual, you were correct. From December 21st through January 17th, it was the coldest four weeks we've had in 27 years. Whoa, really? Yeah, and it ranked as the fifth coldest four-week period in the last 40 years. Man. So if you thought, boy, this cold's lasting a long time, mm-hmm. you were correct. But we might have been due for that, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got to pay the pipe for every yes, once in a while. Yes, you do. <laughs> Your Ag Weather Watch is brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, and this, gentlemen, is Paul Perkins. And we are continuing to watch that potential for a winter storm to move uh, towards our area for the late part of the weekend. This storm system still starting to move is just starting to move on shore towards the Pacific Coast, so they do need to get a feel for where it's going to be going as it does move over land, when it's out in the ocean, it's kind of hard to tell where it's going to go exactly. But right now, confidence is pretty high that much of Nebraska looking at the great potential of a winter storm. And so a winter storm watch has been issued for Sunday morning through Monday morning in central, west central, and northern Nebraska. Pretty much the only area that's not in some kind of a winter storm watch is the southeast third of Nebraska and extreme southwest Nebraska. And that is subject to change. There is a watch for all of the panhandle. That goes into effect tomorrow afternoon and runs to Sunday afternoon. But for most areas, winter storm watch Sunday morning through Monday morning, central, west central, and northern Nebraska. Freezing drizzle and possible. Freezing drizzle is possible with this storm. Snow is definitely a likelihood. Strong north winds of 20 to 40 likely to result in blowing and drifting as snow. Difficult travel. We could see ice accumulations of light glaze with this. Snow accumulations will total about 4 to 6 inches in most areas, but we could see 7 to 8 inches in some of west-central and north-central Nebraska, basically from about North Platte on up to the Sand Hills and north-central Nebraska. That precipitation could possibly start out as freezing drizzle for Sunday morning, then change to snow by the Sunday afternoon period. Snow could be heavy as we head towards Sunday into uh, the early part of Monday. Today going to be our warmest day that we've had since about the 18th of last month as a ridge of high pressure is centered over the plains. High clouds keeping those temperatures from getting even warmer today. Our temperatures tomorrow will be cooler, but still mild for mid-January. That's after a cold front tracks through the region for tonight. Forecast models in good agreement for this winter storm to impact central and north-central Nebraska and the northwest panhandle. Accumulating snow likely across the entire region. Despite the current model consensus, the forecast storm track, it could change between now and Sunday. So you do need to stay tuned for possible adjustments, especially once again, as this storm moves on land, they'll get a better grasp of where it will go exactly. Now, most of the snow should be late Sunday afternoon into Sunday night. Snow will diminish Monday morning from west to east. That system should strengthen as it tracks across our area rather than weaken as other systems have recently. Tuesday through Thursday, it's going to be uh, drying out. And for a change, we're not going to get overly cold behind this system. Temperatures warm to above freezing by Wednesday and Thursday. In the long term, Nebraska and Kansas temperatures will be mainly seasonal or near normal Wednesday through the 1st of February. Western Nebraska 
closer to the cooler than normal side. Southeast Nebraska and eastern Kansas will be closer to warmer than normal. Our precipitation forecast for Nebraska and Kansas starts out drier than normal the middle of next week. Then we'll trend slightly above normal precipitation late next week through the 1st of February. Weather factors in the market include a dry weekend in Argentina and a developing variable rain pattern in Brazil. A gradual warming trend here in the U.S. will continue through the weekend across the southeast and Midwest. A winter storm emerging from the western U.S. expected to produce significant snow across parts of the inner mountain west and Rockies, then into the northern and central plains and upper Midwest. The highest risk for snow and wind is eastern South Dakota through south and west Minnesota. In case you're planning your vacation there, Dirk, <laughs> blizzard conditions are possible there Sunday night and Monday. So it's going to be definitely the most serious and once again, eastern South Dakota and south and west Minnesota. Over the weekend, thunderstorms could erupt across the Mid-South. Southern Plain wheat areas are remaining in the grip of a dry La Nina pattern. Moisture chances are minimal this next week. The entire southwest sector of the Southern Plains in either severe or extreme drought. This weekend into early next week in Argentina, going to be very warm to hot and mostly dry. That's going to lead to possible reduced acreage for soybean planting due to dry soils. The rainy pattern in Brazil, more variable. The south continues to receive periods of moderate to heavy rain. The central and north are drier. That drier trend bears some watching for possible stress to the later developing crops there. Well, if I were planning a vacation here in the wintertime, that would not be my plan, but it would be my luck. That's the way it runs. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, your Ag Weather Watch brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your Ranky dealer. And, of course, we'll be hearing also from Al Dutcher and get his take on all of this incoming weather here at about 1219 or so on the midday program. And- one other note, we do have uh, graphics uh, with storm totals, uh, snowfall accumulation expectations on our Facebook page at KRVN2, so you can check that out. Okay, and that's uh, changing from time to time. We're going to keep up with that. Exactly, yeah, because they filled in the southern panhandle from earlier this morning to now all of the panhandle, and then southern areas of west central Nebraska got included in this also. All right, so we'll keep a close eye on that. You can keep a close eye either on your app or krvn.com. looks at revamping pork processing plant rules, Brazil possibly looking at lifting the U.S. ethanol tariff, and agriculture is one place where bipartisan support can be found in Washington, D.C. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Dow Jones Agriculture reports that U.S. meat companies could take on more responsibility for inspecting pork for food safety while slaughtering hogs at a faster clip under new rules proposed by the USDA. The USDA is basing the new rules around a 15-year-old pilot program that's involved five U.S. pork plants, which have been allowed to process hogs at a maximum speed 17% faster than other pork processing plants. The system also shifts USDA meat inspectors from observing carcasses on the processing line to other positions around the plant. The USDA says this gives inspectors a better look at a plant's full range of food safety practices. Critics say the new plan relies too much on meat companies to police food safety. Under the new USDA rules, hog processing plants would be able to process up to 1,295 hogs per hour versus the current limit of 1,106 hogs per hour. But agency officials say the shift wouldn't put meat plant workers at greater risks. They've studied from 2002 to 2010 at conventionally operated pork plants, compared those to the 
pork plants in the pilot program with the 17% faster rates, and they found that there's a lower mean injury rates in the pilot program plants. The agency acknowledges a higher rate of automation at the faster plants as well could help in protecting the workers. In international trade news, Brazil is studying the removal of a 20% tariff on ethanol imports from the U.S. This comes from the Agriculture Minister of Brazil, Blair Omagi, who said on Wednesday that the decision could depend on Washington lifting a ban on fresh beef exports from Brazil to the U.S. Last year, Brazil imposed a 20% tax on ethanol imported from the U.S. that exceeds a 600 million liter annual quota to protect local producers as ethanol imports spiked into the country. The tariff hike may have also been in retaliation. In 2017, the U.S. banned shipments of fresh beef from Brazil following a food safety scandal involving bribes paid to inspectors that led to heightened inspections by the U.S. and in turn uncovered potential health risks. Moggy told reporters the ban on fresh beef exports could be lifted by April when he's expected to step down in order to meet a deadline to run for elected office in October. Brazil has already submitted all the material requested by the U.S. to address concerns over beef exports and is awaiting for the United States to decide whether the issue is resolved. While a possible government shutdown looms, there's not much in Washington, D.C. that has bipartisan support. Agriculture, though, does provide one area both parties can get behind. Bruce Gorder has more. With Congress squabbling on just about every issue that comes up, it's nice to see an issue related to agriculture that gets support across the aisle. Doug Durante is the executive director for the Clean Fuels Development Coalition, and he says that issue is ethanol. This is one of the few things that honestly is a bipartisan issue. We've enjoyed that for the history of ethanol, that it uh, really transcends that. It really does. You've got uh, great partnerships between Republicans and Democrats, so thankfully that's one of the one thing we've got going for us, that when you see an ethanol issue come up and you look who's behind it, uh, it's one of the few times you see Republicans and Democrats arm in arm. So that's, that's not been a problem. That's Doug Durante. He is the executive director for the Clean Fuels Development Coalition. I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. It's hard to squabble over the industry that all other industries have their roots in. I'm Clay Patton. Keep a straight row. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. It's time again this week to visit with Nebraska Extension Agricultural Climatologist Al Dutcher. And Al, getting a nice little warm-up here mid to late week, but it doesn't sound like that's going to stick around. No, unfortunately, this short-lived warm spell is going to be followed by a system coming in through the central Rockies, and it's been making news. We mentioned last week that uh, there would be a storm coming in this weekend with the potential to produce some precipitation. And as at this time of the year, each system, depending on its overall track, has the potential to lay out snow. And the farther south of the track is, the more Gulf moisture we can pull into a system. This system looks like it's primed to move across the state in the central part of the United States and extract that moisture up north into it and override it into the cooler air mass on the back side of it. Bottom line, looks like the quantitative precipitation output for this system has been increasing with each model run. Uh, yesterday's run had the core that heavy precipitation in northeast Nebraska. It's now spread that back into central Nebraska. 
Uh, right now, some of the totals I think that the NWS is pushing out has been in the 5 to 8 inch range in the heavier uh, precipitation bands because we will start out in, a, in the, a much warmer temperatures and then cool as the system moves through. So some of the initial onset of this precipitation will be some wet snow, maybe some rain and some freezing drizzle, freezing rain possible in portions of south central, central Nebraska before we change over to snow and the cold air comes into our region. The question is, how quickly will the system pass through? And right now, it looks like the onset of that precipitation may begin in earnest in the northwest part of the state as early as Sunday, Saturday evening, uh, with the more intense portion of that precipitation band starting to move across the region as we go into Sunday night into Monday, and then exiting as it goes out to the northeast sometime during the late part of Monday into early Tuesday in the northeast, and really explode this system over the Great Lakes region. We would expect there's going to be a very strong low pressure system, so we're going to be dealing with a lot of wind with this system. So we're going to start out with a, a wet combination mix of heavy wet snow moving to lighter snow. Would not be surprised that we would see some issuance of blizzard warnings. The most likely area for that would be, I would think, northeastern Nebraska as the low goes up into the Great Lakes and really winds itself up. That's going to move a lot of snow, make travel very difficult. And of course, we're going to probably be starting in some locations, the early start of uh, calving. So this is likely to put some stress on the cattle. More importantly, and the one thing that we're watching, and I'll advise everybody, and I've been speaking about this lately at some of the talks that I've been giving, is that the Rocky Mountain snowpack from central Colorado southward is just abysmal. In fact, some of the lowest snowfall totals on a statewide basis for the mountains that we've been reported in 30 years to this point in time. And if people have heard me in the past, I've always mentioned that that's an important criteria for the termination of drought spreading into our region. So this very Arctic air that we've been seeing has been finally broke loose and allowing energy to come in the western United States. We just don't see these systems digging far enough south where we can get a lot of snow thrown up in the mountains. And if you look at this system, most of the warnings with this are from the... Colorado border northward, basically southern Wyoming and, and up to uh, portions of the northern Rockies. No accumulations in the central Rockies, but they don't, just don't look significant as the system doesn't get the full brunt of the moisture from the Gulf wrapped into it quick enough to really lay out a good foundation of snow. All right. Thanks so much, Al. Nebraska Extension Agricultural Climatologist Al Dutcher joining us again this week. Sounds like Colder weather on the way yet again here in Nebraska and parts of the Midwest. For more weather, ag news, and market information, you can visit RuralRadio.com. I'm Shaley Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to the Midday Program on the Rural Radio Network. And time to check sports. Here's Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, Nebraska landed another big commitment last night when Miles Jones announced his verbal to the Huskers after hosting head coach Scott Frost and a couple of Husker assistants with an in-home visit. Now, he'd visited Lincoln this past weekend, and at the time, he was committed to Vanderbilt, but he decommitted from the Commodores on Tuesday, leaving Nebraska his likely choice. His commitment gives Nebraska 17 in the class at this time, and he's the fourth commitment that the Huskers have landed since the early signing period. Nebraska also picked up a pledge from Florida wide receiver Dominic Watt. The six foot one, 200-pounder announced his pledge on Twitter late last night after being visited by Nebraska coaches. He's considered to be a three-star recruit. 
James Palmer Jr. scored 19 points. Isaiah Rubby finished up with a career-high 14 as Nebraska knocked off 23rd-ranked Michigan 72-52 for its first win over the Wolverines since joining the Big Ten. Nebraska, which needed Palmer's three-pointer to beat last-place Illinois on Monday, led 32-21 at the half and never let Michigan get closer than 10. Roby feels this was a big one for the team to have. It's good to kind of flip the tables on them, I guess you could say. Um, it was a big game for us, for sure. So it was fun to get a win like that. It started a streak, like a win streak for us, and we get, we're going into Ohio State and at Rutgers. So we got a two-game road trip. So it's going to be big just to keep that momentum going. The Wolverines had come in 8-0 against the Huskers since Nebraska joined the Big Ten in 2011 and had won 10 straight in the series. Senior guard Lane Rourke of Pierce had 24 points and senior forward Trey Landsman added 19 points and 7 rebounds as UNK stunned second-ranked Northwest Missouri last night 66-59. The Lobers were hosting the Bearcats for the first time since January of 2014. Northwest Missouri went into that matchup having won 50 out of its last 52 games. UNK will host Missouri Western on Saturday. And at the Australian Open, top seeder Rafael Nadal has advanced to the fourth round for the 11th time as he was a winner in straight sets. And Tim Tebow will be at spring training with the New York Mets. The 30-year-old outfielder was among nine spring training invitees announced by the team today. Former Heisman Trophy winner and NFL quarterback is getting set for his second professional baseball season. Last year he hit 226 with eight homers and 52 RBIs in 126 games at the Class A level. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Partly cloudy skies tonight with lows in the 20s. Meanwhile, winter storm watches are posted for Sunday into Monday for central and northeast Nebraska. I'm Dave Schroeder. The U.S. House has voted to remain in session, for now at least, while a Senate vote to avert a government shutdown looms. Republican leaders plan to adjourn today after approving a four-week spending bill Thursday night that would avert a government shutdown. They changed course today after Democrats forced a formal vote on adjournment. The legislature's Health and Human Services Committee heard testimony on a bill yesterday that would allow uh, the development of remote pharmacies in underserved areas of Nebraska. Travis Maloli, a pharmacist and pharmacy owner from Lexington, served on a working group with the Nebraska Pharmacist Association to develop guidelines for the proposal. The concept of LB731 is that a supervising pharmacy will be connected to a remote dispensing pharmacy via real-time audio-visual communication systems. The pharmacist at the supervising pharmacy will be required to supervise and verify the work of a certified pharmacy technician located at the remote dispensing pharmacy. A remote dispensing pharmacy could not be located within 10 driving miles of another retail pharmacy. Maloli said the residents of one rural community have asked him to reopen a closed pharmacy, while a full-scale retail pharmacy may not always be feasible in a community, a remote pharmacy would be a good option. A second man has been charged with killing a U.S. Army soldier who is visiting Omaha relatives for the holidays. Police say that 35-year-old Jason Devers was arrested yesterday. Court records say he's charged with first-degree murder. 27-year-old Larry Goines was arrested January 12th and faces the same charge. His attorney, Stu Dornan, says Goines will plead not guilty. Devers and Goines are suspected in the shooting death of 27-year-old Kyle LaFoy outside the Rain Lounge early on January 6th. 
Owners and advocates of long-term care providers in Kansas say they're being squeezed financially on several fronts. The advocates told the Kansas Health, uh, Health and Human Services Committee that Kansas providers face grave financial hardships due to low reimbursement rates, backlogs in processing Medicaid applications, and a recent spike in civil penalties for health and safety violations. A survey found such facilities in the Midwest reported operating at a net loss of about 0.5% in 2016. Our app puts regional, ag, national, and area news just one click away anytime. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. The looming discussion of a government shutdown, NAFTA, and other issues affecting rural America. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. I caught up with Nebraska's Congressman Jeff Fortenberry as we first talk about that budget shortfall. Your perspective on this tweet, let's shut down the idea of a shutdown. Uh, that doesn't do anyone any good. It's disruptive, it, it just plays into bad politics, it's not the right way to govern. Uh, the current situation is not the right way to govern either. I'm on the Appropriations Committee and we have frontline responsibility for budgetary decisions and making hard decisions, which we have done all year long. But unfortunately, the great political divide and philosophical divide and the divide between the House and Senate has prohibited the ability for us to move all of those individual bills across the goal. So here we are. We're stuck. We have to do what's called a continuing resolution probably for a few more weeks until we can get to a permanent budget for this week, for this year rather, that funds our military adequately funds important public policies that are necessary to set up the guardrails for a flourishing economy and to protect people's rights and to create safe conditions in commerce and interaction, while at the same time modernizing and letting go of what is old and ineffective. Uh, we're, what I hope doesn't happen is a government shutdown. I think what we can probably do is pass a temporary measure that funds us for a few more weeks, giving space, by the way, for the negotiation over uh, increased border security and creating the conditions in which we can accommodate young people who were brought here against their will and who do, do not currently have legal status in the United States. Congressman, we've heard a lot of talk coming out of D.C. that there might be some softening on the president's side when it comes to NAFTA. For so long we've been hearing him talk about wanting to walk away, but now we're hearing possibly that maybe NAFTA's okay and, and he's relaxing his thoughts a little bit. It's a great question. Um, I, I haven't had proximity to the president to talk to him about this or haven't been in a meeting with him where he's talked directly about this. However, I was with about 25 members of Congress uh, recently at the Mexican embassy with the Canadian ambassador as well to talk about the dynamics of trade. Um, trade that is fair and effective helps both peoples uh, in, to our south, to our north and to us. Trade that is manipulated actually can become decimating to certain sectors of our economy, and you've seen that with the manufacturing sector particularly. Uh, farmers in Nebraska have uh, know the importance of enhanced marketability for our products through trade, and yet at the same time are very sympathetic to making sure that this is also fair. And by the president calling for a reset, I think it's creating the conditions in which we can renegotiate certain aspects of it to make it more imbalanced, and yet at the same time preserve the heart of the idea of, again, fair and effective trade that is beneficial to all peoples. 
that was actually the spirit of the conversation as well with the Mexicans and the Canadians uh, about a month ago. I know the president spoke at length to the Farm Bureau Convention. Uh, I didn't hear the fullness of his speech, but I assume he touched on that, and I assume that's where your comments are coming from, that there mm-hmm. appears to be a softening. He also talked while he was at Farm Bureau, since you brought up Farm Bureau, about rural broadband and the need to continue to expand and get some good qualified broadband out there to continue to grow rural America. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very important point, particularly in terms of 21st century architecture of economic regeneration and ensuring that rural communities are not left behind. Uh, one of the great equalizers out there is the Internet, and, but you have to have access to it and competition for it as well so that you don't have monopolistic control over it. So anything we can do to continue to expand rural broadband actually creates conditions in which people who are, have a heartfelt desire to live in the heart of America in our rural communities and be proximate to farming and agriculture and all the wonderful things that happen in smaller communities uh, have a level playing field with those in urban communities, particularly the coast. Uh, one of the things that we, I would like to add, though, that I'm hopeful we can think through creatively is not just policies that fit the traditional debate about farm country and what we do with trade or broadband or uh, support mechanisms uh, for various commodities. What, it's, it's the issue of net farm income. And one of the biggest hits on net farm income right now is the lack of access to affordable health care. I hear it all the time. Um, it's not just among the farm community, but particularly among small businesses. But the inability for a farmer and the family to have good, affordable health care that's necessarily protective um, is a serious strain on their revenue or a deteriorating effect, effect as to whether or not they can even stay in this in small business or potentially in farming without one spouse going off and working for an institution that provides benefits. That's not fair. That's an entrepreneurial drain. It is unhitting, hitting the agricultural sector very hard as well as small business. If we want to revive our economy, if we want to have a revival of entrepreneurial momentum, a new economic regeneration. It's this issue of affordability of health care that it's one of the biggest drains. And by the way, I did a farm survey recently and uh, tried to touch everybody in the district who is involved directly or indirectly with agriculture. And we've got a number of good comments back. My conversation with Jeff Fortenberry. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. We're back on the Rural Radio Network. Joe Teal at Great Plains Commodities is off today. Triple-digit losses in the feeder cattle today. Inability to bring back the buyer support was seen over the past two trading sessions. That's created an underlying position, at least uh, taking with the nearby contracts holding losses of $1.22 to $1.57. Now, that affected the live cattle as well today, as we had more narrow losses, though. Likely to be some additional market shifts as well. And now we have this weekend to consider what might happen next week. There's been very little, if any, cash cattle trading so far. As we've seen bids in the country at 118 in Texas, excuse me, Nebraska and Kansas live basis, 190 to 192 on address trade. But it looks like this standoff is continuing at least for another um, half hour to an hour, maybe longer. But for the most part, we're going to have to get together sometime or another to see some cash cattle trading. Lean hogs, well, 
They had a mixed trade at midday, but they're going to end the day 15 to 97 lower with the biggest loss in February. They're focusing on the overall lack of buyer support willing to move back into the market. But there is growing support for market stability in some of those far deferred contracts. Looking at slaughter estimates for this week through first six days, of course, in cattle, 615,000. Compare that with the holiday period of one year ago, it's 40,000 more. Hog slaughter, 238,000, 2,000 more than the same week of one year ago. And there's the latest in the livestock futures trade, Dewey Nelson on the World Radio Network. earlier this week that now all of Mexico and all Mexican states can now import pork to the U.S., and it's a move supported by the National Pork Producers Council. To find out more about this news, as well as what it means for U.S. pork producers, we go to the National Pork Producers Council here on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Joining me from the National Pork Producers Council is Press Officer Jim Monroe. Jim, thanks for joining us. Kind of explain what this uh, expansion of Mexican pork imports to the U.S. is. Uh, thanks for having me, Clay. Well, this is this is a positive development um, uh, for the U.S. pork industry. Uh, the National Pork Producers Council supports free trade. Um, supports free trade as long as it is you know it can be conducted safely. And the USDA recently concluded that any risk of uh, classical swine fever, uh, something that was present in in the uh, Mexican pork system not too long ago that, that that risk no longer exists that it's very negligible and um, because that's based on you know intensive scientific analysis we fully support free trade wherever that can happen safely um, you know we're the most competitive pork industry in the world the US pork industry we welcome competition we want to be able to compete on a level level playing field in all markets around the world. We do very well when we're when we're competing in that situation. And so it only helps us to reciprocate with that um, with that position with other countries. Um, it, it, you know if if, uh, if if we don't have that stance, there's always the possibility that we could face retaliation in markets that are very important to us. And the Mexican market is very important to us. It's the US pork industries number one export market by volume. Uh, so uh, we think, you know, it supports our position, our overall position on free trade, the decision. As I said, we welcome the competition uh, in Mexico and, and in other parts of the world. And, and so this is, this is good for uh, Mexican producers, and it's really good for, from our point of view from for U.S. pork producers. And like you said, it's the politics of trade deals that it's reciprocal trade. It has to be done because has Me- how many years has Mexico been trying to get the entire country included for import of pork to the U.S.? Well, they they uh, in in 2007 uh, they requested market access um, uh, to the U.S. for uh, eight states in their central region. Um, and not too long after that, they expanded their request. Really, you know, after the, the USDA 
uh, had cleared it as being free of CSF. They expanded it to really all of their states. And so it's really, this has been an, an ongoing issue. It was in 2016 that the USDA cleared Mexico of any any uh, risk of, C- of classical swine fever. We're, we're glad that, the, you know, and we've been, since that time, we've been advocating for uh, imports from Mexico, and we think this is a good development. Now, of course, National Pork Producers are very supportive of this action. Does this expansion of trade with Mexico, does that look to affect the domestic market for U.S. pork producers any? You know, it's, I think it's a little early to make that call. Ultimately, the market dynamics and, you know, the natural forces of the market will determine how that plays out. So I'm not sure I could speculate at this point on what kind of impact it will have. That's Jim Monroe, press officer for the National Pork Producers Council, joining us today, talking about trade and the recent developments with Mexico. Now, can import pork to the U.S. as it has been declared free of any classical swine fever? You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Now we visit with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. John, as we take a look here at the end, what is the positive takeaways from this week's grain trade? Well, the fact that we didn't fall apart after the report last Friday. You know, the news wasn't fantastic from the USDA. and. Looking at markets like soybeans, we set off the lows now by about 35 cents. Corn rallied about, oh, 7 to 8 cents. And wheat, although lagging, off its lows by about, oh, 5 to 6, depending on where you've looked at the close. So all in all, good price session this week. Uh, dollar weaker. Uh, next week, we'll be focused on NAFTA as those discussions start to ramp up again. Uh, I think you could see some fear get priced in the marketplace, more specifically on the livestock side, but in the in the in the terms of cattle, or uh, I'm sorry, of corn, uh, the close above the 50-day moving average today was pretty solid. Uh, wouldn't be shocked to see kind of a short covering move next week. Maybe take us as high as 358 to 360. Now, as we take a look at soybeans, they've really been the bulls this week. Is that helped by the soybean park complex, especially the meal? Yeah, the meal. I mean, we've seen typical bull action here. Now, we did have a great close of the week, about four off the highs. I think maybe the rally is a little tired here, but um, just given that we've seen this market jump, good uh, export demand. Obviously, we saw this morning in the reports, U.S. still, I think, we're 20 cents cheaper than where they offer down in, uh, in Argentina and Brazil. So that's going to keep us in the market here as far as being the ex- primary exporter. Typically, the folks down in uh, South America do not like to sell this time of the year due to the new crop uncertainty. So could see a little bit of a float up. And it wasn't, uh, I think it was a year ago when we made the highs uh, new crop trading around 10.35 to 10.40. We're not far from there. Uh, November closed above $10 today. Very solid price action there. And I look for uh, maybe another run to $10 in the March. I don't think I don't see a bullish on these rallies though. The Brazilian crop looks really good. Argentina is a little bit in flux, but uh, U.S. acreage is going to be there at these prices. And then finally on the wheat, is there any technical points coming up that could help this turn green later on? Ah. Boy, I tell you what, those exports this morning were very poor. You're just having a hard time getting a lot of upward momentum and wanting the market to rally. But then you take a peek over at that drought monitor compared to the years past when we've looked like this in yields. I think you're going to have a hard time making an argument they're going to be as close as they were to trend as they were a year ago. So, uh, again, exports are lagging, but the new crop production story, which is going to be maybe more of a supply driver in the next 6 to 12 months, is looking friendly for bulls. I look for a continued push here. I know seasonally this isn't usually the time of the year we rally, but given the prices where they are, I don't think there's any reason why folks are going to be sticking their head to the ground to say sell 450 wheat at this point in the year. 
That's John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel Zag Marketing in Chicago, publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grains. Contact Daniel Zag Marketing at danielzagmarketing.com.